0: This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage.
1: And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Sugi, we talked with Margo Livesey about the spy novel as a beach read on our last episode, but, uh... Do you remember our last episodes? I'm starting to have this thing where I'm like not sure that I know what we've actually recorded and what we haven't. But I do remember that we had Margot on last week, and we did talk about spies. We had Margot
0: on, and she she mentioned John Le Carre, and she did talk about sitting on the beach. Um, I mean, my mind is a sieve, but I have retained that um, that fact. Today, we're going to talk about real, if
1: perhaps lesser known, spies and the CIA. Do you have any like favorite spy movies?
0: I mean, I really liked all the Daniel Craig Bond movies. I thought Skyfall was really good. But I mean, honestly, I, I still have a soft spot for Austin Powers. <laughs> I can't
1: watch Austin Powers because when I go to the parental guidelines for Austin Powers to see if I can watch it with my kids, they're
0: like, no, you can't. And really?
1: Well, too much sex, I think, maybe for a 10-year-old.
0: I guess that makes sense. Liz Hurley yeah. is in that movie. Um, Plus, my kids are
1: not into spies. They're into superheroes. It's a whole different ballgame. Anyway, my favorite movie is The Constant Gardener, which is from a Jean Le Carre novel and is the kind of movie that
0: my kids would be totally bored by, I think. That's a totally, I mean, that's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Um, And I feel like it gets at so much of the existential um, plight of people living double lives like that.
1: Anyway, the idea of American intelligence agencies seems like an oxymoron today because our president routinely ignores and discredits the findings of our various spies and spymasters, calling them agents of the deep state, or he's busy sending them off on wild goose chases to dig up intelligence on his political opponents or trying to make them do that. But like it or not, spies, politics, and power have gone together as long as the nation state has existed, if not before and later in the show. We're going to be joined by fiction writer Andrew Altshul.
0: But first, we're very happy to welcome veteran war correspondent, best-selling author, and journalist Scott Anderson. Scott is the author of novels Triage and Moonlight Hotel, as well as nonfiction works The Man Who Tried to Save the World, War Zones, Lawrence in Arabia, and Fractured Lands. His newest book is The Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, a Tragedy in Three Acts. Scott's work has frequented The New York Times, GQ, Esquire, and Vanity Fair, he currently lives in Fleischmanns, New York, and was a classmate of Wit's at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Scott, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's good
1: to see you, buddy. How are you doing up there? <laughs> Real good. How about you? <laughs> I'm fine. Uh, uh, we were just saying, you're on the shelf here. This is my nonfiction area. Um,
2: <laughs> I thought for sure you just put him up there for, uh, for show for me. That's true. I had to rush out
1: and buy all of your books and put them in the shelf <laughs> to get this thing set up. Um, all right. So we're pointing out that we've known each other for a long time, since the like, early 90s in, in Iowa, but I have never talked to you about your dad, uh, who appears in the preface of The Quiet Americans. Uh, he was what you call a yellow dog Democrat from Fresno, California, who worked for USAID in South Korea and Taiwan in the 60s, which was a time when those countries were run by dictators backed by the U.S., as, as you say. Um, could you tell us his story and maybe explain why you started the book with him?
2: Yeah. I, I, well, I, he was. Uh, yeah, I, I described him as a yellow dog Democrat. He was. He was from this ranching family in Fresno, California. Um, as soon as he could get overseas, but at the age of eighteen, he just like took off. He he wanted to get the hell out of Fresno. And weirdly enough, he ends up at Pearl Harbor in 1941. On a Navy. he wasn't. He was a civilian, but he was working on a Navy contract building, ironically enough, underground gasoline storage tanks in case of an air attack. (laughs) So he was on this hill directly above Pearl Harbor when the whole thing happened. Oh, my God. He he, he joined the Navy. He fought throughout World War II. Uh, Right afterwards, he joined uh, the Agency for International Development. He wanted to get back overseas. So his first few years in late 40s, early 50s, he was mostly in South America, Central America. And then uh, right around, I guess, about 1959, he, he moves over to Asia, and so I grew up in, as in Asia, uh, in in Korea, and Taiwan, and Indonesia.
1: So, what was it about his life, though, other than the fact that obviously there's some sort of foreign travel gene in the Anderson family, because <laughs> right. your brother, of course, also writes about foreign places. But, uh, you know. What what about his story made him feel like the proper introduction to this story of these four spies that we're going to be talking about?
2: Well, I, I think I've always felt my father was caught in this in this uh, in this kind of dichotomy. I mean, as I said, he was very liberal. Um, part of the work he was doing in these countries was doing agrarian reform, uh, you know, breaking up. These large land holdings and and distributing land to the peasants and stuff. This was a big move in the in the late fifties and early sixties in third world countries, and yet at the same time he was part of the apparatus keeping these military dictatorships in place. So, along with the the kind of soft power hearts and minds work he was doing, um, like agrarian reform, he was also setting up uh, rural uh, uh, vigilante organizations that that were designed to. Keep an eye on the local population and to report any kind of red tendencies uh, you know, among the local population. And I think it, I, I, I know that it really, uh, as time went on, that part of his work uh, really bothered him. We, you know, Taiwan, where I spent my formative years, was a really, really severe military dictatorship. Chiang Kai shek ruled under an official state of siege. So any, anyone steps out of line at all and they were gone into, into the prisons. And so I think that you know, over time that really had a corrosive effect on them. Uh, we moved back to the States in the, right at the end of the 1960s and my father used to drag me and my siblings to anti-war demonstrations down on the Washington Mall. And he always told my, my brother and I, my brother was two years older, that, if, that if, we were still a, if Vietnam was still going on when we came of draft age, he was gonna take us to Canada. So, and then as soon as he was able to, uh, as soon as he turned 50, he quit the government. And uh, I I think he just got sickened out by some of the stuff he'd been doing over the years.
0: Well, your book about T. Lawrence focused on a person who'd been a media sensation during his life and after, and The Quiet Americans chronicles the lives of these four spies, Frank Wisner, Michael Burke, Peter uh, Suchel, and Edward Lansdale. Am I saying that right?
2: Suchel, yeah.
0: Suchel. Um, Wisner and Lansdale are known to students of the CIA, but, but um, none are what I would necessarily say, you know, they're not household names today. So how did you pick those four men to profile? Was the book always structured around their lives, or did you come to them through research?
2: It came to them through research. And the, the funny thing is, so, I, you know, once I decided the parameters of, of what I the, the period I wanted to write about, which is essentially 1944 to 1956, so it's the, this formative years of the of the early Cold War... Um, I, 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 It was kind of a treasure hunt. I wanted to find, and I chose spies because, really, spies were the people at the front line of the Cold War. Um, I, I didn't want to write a history of pe- diplomats or, 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 you know, generals sitting behind desks. I wanted to talk about people who were, who were, you know, directly affected and in, in, in the so-called front lines of this, this struggle. And so, I naturally came to spies. Um, so, yes, you, you mentioned Frank Wisner and Ed Lansdale. They, among people who know the early Cold War period, they, they're, they're fairly well known. But so with this parameter I had, I wanted people who were out in the field doing cool stuff <laughs> and um, also that left a paper trail behind, you know, some documentary evidence that I could kind of build out their story, um, whether it was letters in, in archives or, uh, you know, government documents. So I probably ended up looking at about 20 to 25 different people of, and really with just those kind of basic parameters in line. And I imagine that at the end of it, I would have... You know maybe ten people to choose from, and as it turned out, I had exactly four it was there, there there I did not have a fifth person for this book. I came across some people doing really interesting things for a few years and then all of a sudden they joined the state department and were you know stamping visas at the embassy in paris so i it it, it yeah i was I was kind of I was kind of stuck with these four
1: you call the book a tragedy in three acts, and we're going to talk about the tragedy part later but you know, the opening is kind of, you know, boisterous, you know, <laughs> before, <laughs> before people screw things up or, you know, and, and run into the sort of contradictions that, that you're writing about. But and maybe even romantic, as long as you forget what the CIA would eventually sort of become, which, to be fair, you don't. Um, but to give us a sense of the early part of the book, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the backstory of one of the spies featured here who I did not know anything about, Michael Burke, and read us a section about his brush with Hollywood.
2: Early on, I describe uh, Michael Burke as James Bond before James Bond existed. He he was just a, he he had this crazy, crazy life full of highs and lows. And I'll tell you about one of the highs here, which starts out low. Um, Incredibly handsome. uh, People who knew him describe him as the most charming man they'd ever met. And he he really did have the sort of existence of of the CIA that that we cinematically imagine. You you know, much more James Bond than than John le Carre, for for instance, I mean, it was was really very colorful.
1: Not a George Smiley type.
2: Not a George Smiley type, no. Um, So the section I'm gonna read is just after the end of World War II. He had had been a a commando during World War II, parachuted behind enemy lines, had all kinds of crazy adventures. And uh, this is when he's, he's just come back to uh, the United States. He's in New York. <clears throat> As he drank whiskey and soda at the Pierre, the Pierre Hotel, Burke saw that all of this was gone forever. Taking its place was a sad remembrance of all else he had lost in the war. His brother, a number of comrades in arms, and just hours earlier, his marriage. Finally paying his bar bill, he stumbled out to the street where now i asked myself i had no answer but to board a double-decked fifth avenue bus climb to an empty wooden bench at the rear of the open topside, and ride to washington square and back again in the mild september twilight at the moment survival in civilian life was my most ambitious hope i hadn't a clue where to begin but some inner voice impatient with my mood told me i could not ride the fifth avenue bus forever When at last Burke returned to his bleached lodgings at the University of Pennsylvania club that night, he found a telephone message waiting for him. It was from a former OSS comrade named Corey Ford, and he wanted Burke to call him back. A writer best known for his satirical essays in the 1930s, Corey Ford had joined the OSS in 1943, and he and Burke became friends during their wartime postings in London. Helping cement that friendship was Ford's helpful advice after Burke had confided his own vague aspirations of becoming a writer. By September 1945, Ford had co-authored a recently released sensationalized history of OSS entitled Cloak and Dagger. Where Burke came into the picture, Ford explained on the phone, was that Warner Brothers had just bought rights to Cloak and Dagger and they needed a technical advisor to help with the script. Recalling his friend's interest in writing, Ford wondered if Burke might be the man for the job. Oh, and along with a suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel, the one-month gig paid $600 a week, which was not only 12 times the average American income, but exactly $600 a week more than Burke was currently earning. Any interest, Ford asked. In less than 48 hours, Michael Burke had wrapped up his commitments in New York and climbed aboard the Super Chief luxury train for the five-day journey to Los Angeles. While there are many variations of the American dream, within weeks, Burke was living its particularly pleasant South, Southern California version, driving around in a convertible sports car, being paid large sums of money for no discernible reason, drinking cocktails on the beach with Hollywood celebrities. Um, he was out in Hollywood for a couple of years. That all went bust. He, he uh, Burke moved to New York. He wanted to make it as a writer. That was a disaster. Um, <clears throat> He, he tried all kinds of different writing. I did feel
1: bad for him about all those films that didn't, that didn't make. I was like, ah, I, I know what that feels like, kind of. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, I know. We've all been there, right? <laughs> so he's, he's, once again, he's completely broke in New York, and he gets this phone call from a guy who says, you know, I want to, I want to have a discreet conversation with you, um, but I, I, let's do it in person. So there's actually two men came up from, from uh, Washington and met with Burke, And they were with the Office of Policy Coordination, which is the covert operations wing of the CIA, an outfit so secret that even a name, Office of Policy Coordination, of course, it was chosen for just how boring the name is, but the name itself was a classified secret for 25 years. So Burke meets these two at at the Algonquin Hotel bar in New York. And after many drinks and and sort of, you know, palling around, uh, one of the guys says, uh, uh, what do you know about Albania? And uh, Burke didn't know anything about Albania. <laughs> so, but it's, it's Albania at the time, this is 1949, was a communist dictatorship. It's directly above, it's in southeastern Europe, directly above Greece. And the CIA had this operation that of any countries in the, in the Soviet bloc of Eastern Europe that they might be able to knock over, it was, it was Albania. Um, so, of course, Burke didn't admit that he didn't know anything about Albania. So he just, he, he just kind of stayed quiet. and They said, we want you to go start a revolution there. And Burke, again, kind of a poker face didn't come out and say it, but basically he was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all right, I'll do it. And he also kind of missed the war. I mean, there's one thing that came up again and again with these guys is that they'd had this crazy life during World War II and they were, you know, they, most of them tried to go back to a civilian life. But as soon as the CIA started up and these covert operations uh, started in, you know, they jumped back in uh, in, in a heartbeat. Um, and you know, just to finish with Burke, he, so he ends up, because the albanian anti communist refugee population is Italy, he and his wife moved to Rome they live this this incredible just incredible double life where Burke is hanging out with all these Italian directors and movie stars during the day and slipping off at night to meet with his 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 commando colleagues
0: so wild um I'm fascinated by the way that Hollywood, which is you know this land of fiction, is so hungry to eat up and sell the the quote unquote real life experience of a man like Michael Burke. And your title obviously refers to Graham Greene's novel. And there are plenty of references in the book to films and literature about spies, which is it's you know it's whole this whole genre. And, and Tenet is out this week, and we all grew up watching movies about the untouchable and enigmatic James Bond, which we've already talked about, and or reading John le Carré or, or laughing at Austin Powers. Um, so just how much did the American love of spies protect and empower the, the characters in the quiet Americans and you think also the CIA itself? Like, how does the CIA weaponize that?
2: I've, I've thought a lot about this. I, I, I mean, maybe you see it more in the United States because, because of movies and, and things. But I think it's almost that this, this people have a natural fascination with it. And I think it's, it's two things. It's the idea of having a double life having a secret life. Um, and also operating outside of the system. You get to you know, you're living by your wits, you're you're kind of making things up as you go along. The interesting thing, you know, I, I remember reading this years ago about how the mafia got a lot of its its, its you know its dressing tips and stuff from watching the Godfather movies. <laughs> and I think that I I think there's something with with the CIA about that too. That they the the, the whole idea of of life imitating art. Um the fact is, I, you know, the, the one man of the four that I write about who's still alive, Peter Sitchell, he's 98 years old. Um, you know, he, he said that, you know, there were there were long periods of, of tedium and the whole, in fact, the act of having a double life uh, and is is incredibly alienating. You can't tell. I think his wife knew what, what he was doing, but she certainly don't know the details and his friends didn't know at all. Um, so, so I think that it's very isolating and, and, but yeah, when you have those moments where your, your actual life and, because he was, you know, Peter Sichel would be off like, you know, meeting agents and, and meeting spies, you know, behind the enemy lines and stuff. Uh, I'm sure that there are times when you think, God, this is just like the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's also very, it's very
1: literary having a double life, right? I mean, it fits into fiction. It's good for narrative. And you mentioned the OPC, this is a little bit off topic, but didn't they? Is that the group that started the Paris Review? And, and like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think you wrote about that also in the book. Like they did all this sort of cultural stuff in Europe also during this time.
2: That's right. No, and the, the great irony. The, so the OPC was just this, this massive, the guy who headed it, it who's one of the four, uh, Frank Wisner, he, he referred to it as the Mighty Wurlitzer. And it was everything from plotting assassinations and in plotting the overthrow of governments down to yeah to to funding the paris review <laughs> and in in hindsight when you look at this period and you know what was actually most successful was often the, the the kind of soft power like cultural events that they put on all through europe because it had it had this kind of organic effect of showing Europeans the power of freedom of artistic expression and, you know, in contrast to what was happening you know, behind the the Iron Curtain. So
1: the second act of this book begins with Edward Lansdale. This Edward Lansdale quote, it's not enough to be against communism. You have to be for something, which a lot of reviewers have noticed. But but that section is also at pains to show that communism, as practiced by Stalin, was well, I mean, first of all, it wasn't communism. Uh, You know, it's just authoritarian state, all pervasive (laughs) control over the population. So it's a sort of I don't like I don't like conflating those two things. But um, you do begin that section by narrating. But that but that system had a lot to be against. Right. And and uh, you begin that section by narrating a trick played by the Czech communist intelligence service on a family called the uh, Prosviks or however you pronounce that name properly. Could you just describe that for the listeners and how that worked?
2: Before I say that, I'll just say, you know, the one thing that is, it was really astonishing is how, how utterly ill-equipped the Americans were realizing that, and how slow they were to realize that they were going into another conflict, the Cold War. And the Soviets have always been, and even prior to the Soviets, the czars, the czars, Russian intelligence has always been masters at deception and disinformation, um, And just to to mention Peter Stichel again, so right after the war, he was sent to Berlin. And Berlin was the ground zero of of the coming Cold War. Uh, Thousands of Soviet intelligence officers were running around Berlin in late 1945 when when the war was over. Peter Stichel was put in charge of the covert, uh, covert operations unit there. He was one of nine guys, nine against probably several thousand. And he just turned 24 and he's running this outfit. So, <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so on the Provik, uh, the Provik families. So, and this was something that would happen routinely. So basically um, this was in 1948, right in Czechoslovakia, there was, there was kind of a, a upper middle class uh, family in Prague. They were, they were. A, he had just had his factories seized by the the communist government that had just come into, into office. He was approached by a man who claimed to be a, a, a American counterintelligence officer, and said, "Hey, you know, you're under danger from the regime. We can get you and your family across to Western Germany, to to the the American sector in Germany." Uh, and the, the Provic, the, the the father. Resisted. He didn't want to leave Czechoslovakia, but he kept getting these calls from this American counterintelligence officer, saying you're un- you're under threat. They're going to come for you. So finally, the, the family decided to 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 bolt, and they were taken down to the border. They uh, a local policeman t- takes them across the border. They're inside Germany. They go to this U.S. Army base um, in in western Germany where they're debriefed. They're they're um, they're questioned by this American army officer. And at some point during that, that interview, everything goes south. And the American army officer decides, uh, uh, you're, you're, not, you're not true anti-communist, you, you're, you're, you've been sent by the government. And he, by gunpoint, he sends them back across the border and hands them into t- the hands of the Czech secret police. They go off to the prisons for the next 10, 15 years. The entire operation was, was a deception. There was, there was never an American army officer in Prague. The, the uh, U.S. Army base that they walked into in Germany was actually, uh, they were still in Czechoslovakia. And the incredible thing about this operation, this operation went on for several years. Over 300 people were caught up in it. And even after some of these people had spent 20 years in prison, they still thought that somehow they had gotten lost in the forest and had turned back into Czechoslovakia. They still thought that they had that it
1: was real, that they really had talked to the Americans. Yeah,
2: and this and so when you think of the people involved in pulling this, this entrapment off, uh, you know dozens, if not hundreds of people played some role in it, and it and, and it was never uncovered, just gives you a sense of the incredible sophistication of of uh, of how the, the Soviets worked.
0: So obviously, this seems like a good thing to be against. What in how do you think about the the tragedy in the end for your quartet of spies, and how is it, in your opinion, that they don't find something to be for, or that they're so horribly for the wrong thing?
2: You know, I I think what happened with all of them, personally, you know, part of talk about there's this desire they all had to go. Back in to go back into the game, um, to go back in the CIA, and the early years of the CIA, they they had tremendous latitude to try, to try to do things, to try to try to figure th- things out themselves. The CIA gradually becomes more and more bureaucratized; they have less freedom of you know independent action. Um, but then, really, what you see when the Eisenhower administration comes in in fifty two is that whatever sort of idealism that you saw six, seven years earlier, um, is gone. And now, you know, it, it, you know, FDR in 1944 was talking about the, the, you know, the end of World War II was going to be the end of the colonial, impi- colonial empires. Uh, America was going to be this herald of democracy around the world, in the, in the developing world. And then a, dec- a decade later, now America's overthrowing democratic regimes in Guatemala and Iran. And it, America is propping up colonial regimes throughout Asia and Africa. Um, So the policy had completely changed. And I think what happened to these men individually, you know, I I talked about Burke earlier. Burke was uh, in charge of of all these infiltration operations of dropping anti-communist partisans behind the Iron Curtain. He dispatched hundreds, probably hundreds, maybe even low thousands of, of men across the line. And all these operations were disasters. The the KGB knew these guys were coming from the get-go, and they were, virtually all of them were rounded up and either executed or or thrown into the gulags. So he became quite disillusioned. Um, Peter Sitchell, I think, for for rather similar reasons. He just saw this futility in the way the war was being waged. Um, What was also happening at the same time was the Red Scare was happening domestically in in the U.S. Um, And all these men were actually politically quite liberal, certainly very socially liberal. And they saw Joseph McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover, who were leading the, the Red Scare, um, not only as, as fools, but also incredibly injurious to the, to, to the, to the American uh, prestige overseas. And the, one of the great ironies of the story is that two of the four men I write about ended up, Peter Sichel and Frank Wisner, both ended up being investigated by the, uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI as as potential communist spies, so I think the d- disillusionment came. Um, it, it, it it kind of came with the territory. Um, two of the two of the men I write about um, ended up quitting the CIA: uh, Michael Burke and Peter Sichel. Uh, Frank Wisner ended up committing suicide, um, it, it, and uh, I mean he, he was he suffered from mental illness, but what seemed to precipitate the mental illness was his work with the CIA. And really only one, Ed Lansdale stayed stayed in for a while, then even he left.
1: So this time period that you cover in The Quiet Americans from 1944 to 1956 was a while ago, uh, but we're also sort of these days painfully aware of our current president's fondness for authoritarian Stalin-like figures, uh, Putin, Kim Jong-il, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And I wondered if we could talk to bringing this back to the present day. Is there a connection between this coddling of dictators that that Trump sort of likes to do publicly and, and the way that the United States worked with dictatorships as as um, in the in, in this during the time period that you're writing about?
2: There's a, a small thread, uh, you know, I think that what happened um... I think what happened with with the CIA and with, with the American foreign policy in general in the '40s and '50s, and you know, well into the '60s, and, and you know, the time that I was a kid growing up, is that there there was such an incredible tumble of events. There were crises happening you know, every other day, especially in the early early days of the of, of the Cold War, that they went the path of expedience. It's like, okay, we can't like play around with the idea of like, oh, maybe if we get rid of this dictator. You know the the, Dem- the Democrats will take over and it'll be a parliamentary democracy. It's like it's stick with what works essentially. But where I see a real change w- with the current regime here um, <laughs> is that what you've what you have now, what you've never ever had before, is a president who um, has kind of made common ground with with. This this Russian system, you know, to people I, I've talked to within the CIA, um, they all of them, to man and woman, they, they all see Russia, especially Vladimir Putin's Russia, as as an adversarial nation. We it is not a friend of the United States, um, and they are both. Uh, deeply concerned and deeply suspicious of why we have a president <laughs> who seems to so steadfastly uh, not acknowledge that.
1: You had your own run-ins with, uh, with Putin, um, <laughs> yeah. as I recall. <laughs> yeah. I think talking about getting back in and out of the game. So this was in 2009. I, this was like a year before I borrowed your body armor and went to Iraq. And I think when you gave me your body armor, you were like, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm, I'm wonder if this article had anything to do with that. But you wrote a 2009 GQ article on Putin's role in Russia's apartment bombings, which were a big deal at the time. And then that, that got, what was it, Condé Nast was going to not run it in Russia?
2: They didn't run it in Russia. In uh, 1999, there was a ser- series of apartment building bombings in Moscow and, and a couple of other Russian cities that killed about 400 people, civilians. And this is right when Boris Yeltsin had appointed Putin as his prime minister. Putin came out of the KGB. Um, these apartment building bombings got blamed on on Chechen separatists from from Chechnya. And Putin used that pretext to start his, another war in Chechnya and, and kick the hell out of the place. So he became a national hero for having really put the boot in on, on Chechnya. Um, and then he was off to the races. And that was the beginning of the So Putin it was like his, his
1: Gulf of Tonkin. He just— he His made Gulf open. of Tonkin or
2: his Reichstag fire. I mean, yeah.
1: God, I forgot all of this until we started prepping for
2: this. Yeah, no, it's— and. Um, and, but there were all these stories, you know, rumors floating around that, in fact, the KGB had manufactured these. They had carried out these bombings as a way to catapult Putin, one of their own, into power. So I went to, to Russia and I interviewed people, including f- former KGB officers, who said, yeah, no, this was definitely a KGB operation and it was done to, to benefit Putin. The Chechens didn't have anything to do with it. Um, and then when I when I finished the article and handed it in to GQ, um, the lawyers at, at uh, Connie Nass got in the act, and I think they were they were frightened that all the Connie Nass publications that in, 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 they have in Russia were going to be shut down. So the lawyers uh, basically, thre- they first tried to kill the article outright, um, but the editors at GQ, to their credit, uh, threatened to quit if they wouldn't run it. But then they did everything possible to just bury it. it, it there was no mention on the cover of GQ that this article was inside. They wouldn't sell it to any, uh, any kind of publications anywhere in Europe. Um, they, 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 that issue d- did not, there's a, there's a GQ in, in Russia, uh, that issue didn't, didn't come out that month in, in Russia, um, so, so what I, you're
1: saying is if they if they had given that article better play, maybe we wouldn't have Trump as president right now. That, <laughs> maybe. Like if we could have like, torpedoed Putin early on, he wouldn't have gotten this guy elected in our country.
2: Maybe. Well, but I mean, I don't know, because I mean, there's a lot of things that have happened since then. It, you know, and Trump was Trump was kind of sucking up to Putin all along. It didn't seem to have much effect in, in 2016. Um, yeah and then then the upshot of it all was that I got a lot of death threats out of out of Russia as a result of that article and and was told by the American government you know you you, you as long as putin's in, in office, you really can't go back there so i haven't been I haven't been back since
0: that story is um astonishing right now if you listen to a trump ad or I can more accurately call it a trump ramble because I was talking about the radical left socialists who do exist but Uh, They're law-abiding members of the DSA, anti-racist union members, otherwise known as guests and hosts of this podcast, and thus are far less dangerous than the authoritarians he's supporting. And there's a kind of pathetic echo in his words of the kind of militant, unthinking, anti-communism of, say, John Foster Dulles and his brother Allen, who was the first director of the CIA. Um, And as the New York Times recently said of your book, it's, quote, climate of fear and intolerance feels uncomfortably timely.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, the more things change, the more they more they stay the same. And and um, I, you know, I think one thing that I became very aware of in writing this book, you know, I didn't know a lot about this the early Cold War, and I've always been fascinated by that period. And so I went back. And one thing that was very clear with Stalin's Soviet Union in 1944, even when the war was going on, we were wartime allies of the Soviet Union. We were giving them, you know. Uh, tons of weaponry and stuff to fight the Nazis. Already by 1944, the Soviets were already seeing the next war to come. And that war was against the West and specifically uh, the United States. And And they were all, I don't say all, but certainly the machinery of the state was geared up to that. And except for a brief period uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union and in the with Boris Yeltsin coming in, in the early 1990s, I think that's the only time you can look at at, at Russia now um, and not see it as as an adversary to the United States. There was this there was this kind of like brief period, although even during that period, the KGB um, was was conducting all kinds of espionage operations in the states. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's ever left. And you know, again, I think what what is bizarre in the current situation is is we all. We all have kind of suspicions of of why there is this this kind of cohabitation between the Trump administration and and, and Boris Yeltsin. But it's at this point, it's all just kind of theories and, and suspicions and um, but it's it's rather bizarre and frightening and disorienting that this regime that has always been uh, opposed to us is is we now have a president who's who's saying oh no look the other way this nothing to see here
1: but at the same time he's using the kind of language of anti communism that was from that Dulles used and that you know we're we're part of those you know, the committee on anti American activities that you know that, that is a viewed as a black mark of our history where we were going after people for their political beliefs if they were deemed to be communists or socialists. And using that language and ginning up that kind of support, which is very strange because, like, there really isn't a—what socialist, important socialist country is there? I mean, it, he, it, it still sort of vestigially connects to Russia, but Russia's not socialist.
2: No, no. I, I, they still have the rhetoric of it, but it's, a, you know, it's essentially an a ultra-right-wing nationalist oligarchy, uh, which I think is what <laughs> Trump would like this country to look like. So it might—you know, it, it, a lot of this might just be, you know, wishful— you know, emulation of of the strongman. But yeah, you're right. I mean, no, the rhetoric is just completely out of touch with reality uh, at this point. Very weird. Scott, thank you so much for uh, taking the
1: time to talk to us. We'd like to remind our listeners to go out and pick up a copy of The Quiet Americans, and it is great to see you.
2: Thanks, Webb. Great to see you, too.
0: Thanks so much, Scott. Next up, we're joined by my old friend, Andrew Alchul. Andrew is the author of three novels, The Gringa, Deus Ex Machina, and Lady Lazarus, and an O. Henry Prize-winning short story writer. He's a former Wallace Stegner Fellow and Jones Lecturer at Stanford. He's received fellowships from the Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Center, the U-Cross Foundation, and the Fundación Valparaiso. He's the Director of Creative Writing at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Andrew, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, Sugi. It's good to see you. And nice to meet you, Whitney.
0: Nice to meet you, too.
1: We've just been talking to Scott Anderson about the CIA, which overseas might be best known for its behind the scenes attempts to influence the politics of other countries. In your book, an American activist becomes involved with Peruvian militants and then ends up in jail. The book takes some inspiration from the case of Lori Berenson, who spent 20 years in prison in Peru after involvement uh, with the Tupac Amaru. In your book, Years Later, a journalist comes to try to learn the truth about your character, Leonora Gelb. But then that seems to be a kind of impossibility, and he struggles. Um, why did you decide to frame the story that way?
3: So I, I lived in Peru um, for a couple of years in the late 1990s, um, and I've gone back many times since, spent spent a lot of time there. When I was living there, it was about, um, two, two and a half years after Lori Berenson had been arrested um, and tried and convicted and incarcerated in a military prison. Um, And even at that time, the case was still very much in the news. Every time there would be um, a a new motion by one of her lawyers or some kind of visit to Lima by um, Jesse Jackson or a member of the Clinton administration trying to, to plead for leniency in her case, she would come back into the news and the press would always um, dredge up the same footage and the same old photographs of of this woman who had, um, at a press conference in Lima after her arrest, had basically um, been been shouting at the cameras at the reporters um, about the need for revolution in Peru and the oppression and 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 misdeeds of the government. Um, and she came off as as very angry. Um, and really, to a lot of um, regular Peruvians, she really fit the story. That the Peruvian government had disseminated that she was this violent foreign terrorist mastermind, and so even years later, that same footage would would always be run. And the people that I that I spent time with in Peru, you know, it didn't matter whether they were left wing or right wing, old or young, whether they had been sympathetic to the government or sympathetic to the revolutionaries during the Dirty War of the '80s and early '90s. Um, Almost everybody reacted to her the same way with a a, a kind of vitriol, a kind of resentment and hatred that really... Um, stunned me at the time. I mean, I was in my late 20s. I, I considered myself a reasonably politically aware person, but I just couldn't quite understand why this, um, you know, late 20s American woman, very, very kind of petite, unthreatening looking physical person would inspire this kind of loathing from, from everybody around me. Um, so the story interested me for a long time before I started writing novel. And one of the things that interested me most was the fact that the the stories that both the government and Berenson herself told about what really happened um, leading up to her arrest and and trial, um, I, I found both of them completely impossible to believe. The government was painting the picture of this soldier of fortune who had come down and was going to foment revolution and was stockpiling weapons and was essentially like, you know, a, 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 a Terminator type assassin who wanted to overthrow the Peruvian government and destroy Peruvian society. Um, and on the other hand, you had Berenson who had been renting a house in a, in a wealthy suburb of Lima in which um, about 12 or 13 members of the Tupac Amaro group had been living Claiming that she had no idea who was living in the house. She had no idea that they were involved with some kind of violent revolutionary group. She had no idea that they may have been planning some kind of um, violent action against the government. And, and that, to me, rang as equally implausible as the government's story. And so obviously somewhere in between those two wildly polar opposite stories lay the truth of what had happened. And in, you know, 15 or 20 years of, of journalism about the case, nobody has really ever gotten to the bottom of it. I've never read anything where I've said, oh, okay, this starts to sound more like what might have been happening in that house for the nine or 10 months that she was living there. And I eventually just decided that I was going to have to kind of write a fictional version of it to try to figure out for myself what might be plausible, what might explain some of the psychologies, both hers and the Peruvian people and how they reacted to her.
0: And so you chose to write about this from the point of view of an American individual, talking about this kind of earnest do-gooding hubris and, and innocence. And then the Peruvian characters in your novel initially react to Leonora Gelb, the activist who you've the, the character you've created in a certain way, partly because of how American institutions have behaved in other countries. You now, you're talking about the story that the Peruvian government has disseminated. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the relationship between that individual character the, and then the trope of the American abroad, which is sort of part of literature for so long, and then how this connects to this long history? of American interference in the politics of other countries?
3: You know, you're right. There, there is a, a, a long tradition in, a, in American fiction of the American abroad. I mean, it starts, it starts with Twain, um, who wrote very satirically, about Americans abroad. But but starting with um, Hemingway and really right up through the 20th century, or early 21st century, um, the tradition has been much more earnest, right? I mean, these stories are largely about Americans kind of, um, let's say, finding themselves or going on some kind of emotional journey. I mean, if you take something like The Sun Also Rises as the kind of um, you know, paradigmatic 20th century expat novel. Um, and it's a beautiful, wonderful novel. At the same time, in that novel, we get, we're, we're very much centered on the perspective of Jake Barnes, the American expat. We get virtually no access to the lives or experiences or perspectives of the French or of the Spanish, the two countries in which the novel is set. Um, no real sense of the histories, of those people or how um, they might have felt about all these fabulously wealthy Americans just kind of um, frittering away their days in their midst. And that has always struck me as, as, as a very odd, um, uh, you know, really kind of American-centric idea of the world and how it reacts to us. Writing the gringo, it was very important to me to make sure that the American characters, both Leonor Gelb and this character known as Andres, who's trying to write her story, that their experiences were not the center of the story. I mean, certainly what's happening with them and to them and because of them is central to the plot, but I wanted to surround them as best I could with Peruvian characters, with the people who really have a stake in this story, with the people who suffered through the dirty war, with the people who stood the most to lose from a potential um, resurgence of revolutionary violence in Peru in the mid nineties. I wanted to, the novel to make it clear that it's their experience that matters really quite a lot more than the inner journeys or the emotional lives of, of privileged white Americans.
0: You mentioned before that press conference, and there are all of these images of, um, of Lori Berenson, and then these ways in which she appears in history, and then you kind of filling in the gaps there. And there's this great scene early in your book where we see um, Leo, as she sometimes called the book, Etta, or I guess Leo, at, at a press conference. And I was wondering if you'd read a little bit from that part for us.
3: Sure. And like you said, this is from the, from the prologue to the book, so there's not really anything to set up except to say that uh, a, a page or two earlier, it's kind of become obvious to the reader that there's a, there's a very present narrative voice in the story. There's an eye who is narrating to the reader and that their opinions or, or their perspective is um, maybe coloring the way that the story is being told. The 1998 press conference was the first time most Peruvians had seen Leonora Gelb, eight hectic minutes in which her fate was all but sealed. Raw-eyed and hoarse, she marched into the room without an introduction, turning upon the reporters her battered, vengeful gaze. The real danger to Peruvians is not the Cuarta Filosofia, it's their own government. The worst violence in this country is state violence. Ask the campesinos whose land was stolen, whose children are dying. Ask the people whose brothers and husbands have disappeared. It was a Tuesday morning, the ragged end of a restive, clammy winter. Three days earlier, the house she was renting in the leafy Pueblo Libres neighborhood had been sacked by special forces, ravaged, its windows blown out, its white walls strafed. They dragged the bodies of six militants from that house, flaunted them to reporters while the president walked through the wreckage and shook soldiers' hands. Now she stood surrounded by nervous soldiers with rifles at the ready, as if to sell her, to sell the idea of her, someone who required such precautions must be dangerous indeed. No one can deny the terrible inequality, she cried. No one can deny the racism and exploitation that keep millions in poverty. This country was founded on violence, built on violence. Just shut up already, someone called out. There was low laughter, a ripple in the crowd. Why were there guns in the house, Leo? Another voice called. Leo, are you the girlfriend of Agustin Duenas? Leo, do you work for the CIA? Are you a terrorist, Leo? At this, she pulled up, blinking. The room took a breath. Leonora, are you a terrorist? The present work is, among other things, an attempt to answer that question. Was she or was she not a terrorist? Did Leonora Gelb, in the prosecutor's words, knowingly aid, collaborate with, and provide material support to the Quarta Filosofia in their plans for violent overthrow of the government? Was she ready to take hostages, to plant bombs? Was she willing to kill or to die? In these pages, I've tried to sort through the evidence, to determine what she wanted, what she might have felt. I've tried to keep my own feelings out of it. I've tried to consider all sides, but it's been more than a decade, the words terror, Freedom, democracy, war don't mean the same things anymore. Leo, the reporter shouted, answer the question. A man stood on a chair and yelled, fuck you, Leo, and fuck the Quarta Filosofia. Just as it seemed there would be no answer, the prisoner cleared her throat. Is it terrorism to love freedom, she said? Is it terrorism to hate injustice, to feed people who are hungry? She lifted her broken arm as far as she could, the hand white and clammy clenched with the effort. There are no terrorists in the Cuarta Filosofia. It's a revolutionary movement fighting to improve the lives of people who've been forgotten. She craned her neck, voice cracking. If it's terrorism to help poor mothers and sick children, then I am a terrorist. If it's a crime to stand for workers and the oppressed, I accept whatever punishment I'm given. And there it was, the red meat, the money shot. Every newspaper in Peru ran the photo the next morning the hysterical savage, the white girl brandishing her fist, and the identical headline, Yo soy terrorista. It was a disaster, a kind of suicide. Her captors could not believe their ears. Five days later, she was sentenced to life in prison for treason and leadership of a terrorist group. The prosecutor stood before the judges in their canvas hoods and shrugged the matter out of his hands. Senores, he said, the prisoner has already confessed.
1: Thank you very much. That's a really good scene, you know. I was wondering that the, we talked to Russell Banks uh, a couple episodes ago about his novel *The Darling*, which has a character Hannah Musgrave, who's also somewhat like her motives often are good, but she's compromised in some ways and maybe not totally self-aware about what is driving her to have her good emo- emotions, you know, motives, right? Which sort of I think is is what's happening with your with your character. You mentioned, however. Um, In the previous answer, the importance of the Peruvians in the book, right? So I wondered if you could just talk to us about is Leonora right about the things she's saying about the government and talk to us about those Peruvian characters who uh, accompany us through that narrative.
3: Sure. I mean, one of the things that I really set out to investigate in the book is exactly this question of right or wrong. I mean, does does Peru have a long history of oligarchy, of oppression, of, of linguistic minorities, ethnic minorities? Absolutely. Does it have um, truly um, unconscionable levels of income inequality? Absolutely. In 1992, when the dirty war uh, against the Shining Path concluded, um, the average lifespan in the provinces, the country outside of the capital of Lima, was 45 years. Something like um, a third of babies died before their first birthday. So we were talking about, you know, I, I don't even think "feudal" is a strong enough word. We were talking about really kind of medieval conditions that that the that the the wealthy and the aristocracy in Lima had kept much of the country in um, for for centuries. So for Leonora to diagnose these problems is, is, is not difficult, it's not inaccurate. The, the, the problem is when someone from outside comes in talking about what your country needs and what is better for the country and trying to um, stir up change in a country that she doesn't know well, doesn't understand particularly well, um, you know, the entire history of American intervention in, in um, the rest of the world, particularly in the global south, is one of good intentions. It's one of saying, you know, we know what's better for your economy, for your military, for your civil society, and we're going to come in and we're going to help you. Those good intentions almost always lead to slaughter. Right, they almost always lead to thousands of people being impoverished, thousands of people dying, um, and this is why uh, you know Americans, particularly its government and its military, are so suspected around the world. And so, to have an American come in after twelve years of uh, of a counterterrorism war that had really spiraled out of control, that had almost collapsed the entire Peruvian state. Um, The country lived under a state of a virtual martial law and 70,000 people were killed between 1980 and 1992, fully 50% of them at the hands of the military. And here comes a 26-year-old white American who has spent very little time in Peru and she's doing something with people who had been involved in that conflict on the side of the revolutionaries. And again, this is a perspective of Peruvians from all ends of the spectrum. I mean, many leftists were, were at least as angry with Lori Berenson as rightists were because they felt that um, her role as a foreigner in the country trying to stir up revolution again or at least being accused of that, um, really discredited the movement, made it much too easy for the government to say, look, these are outside agitators. These are the hated Americans coming in and trying to tell Peruvians what to do. Um, and that, in fact, is how the how the government spun it and I think was responsible for a lot of the anger against her.
1: Imagine if we had some Peruvians come in and speak in Kenosha right now to tell... Uh people in Kenosha, how they should handle that.
3: Or imagine if we had a foreign country who was, say, trying to interfere in our election because they thought Donald Trump would be better for America, right? I mean, um, undoubtedly, There are people in Russia who think Donald Trump is better for Russia, but there are probably as many people who think, you know, no, Donald Trump is the right leader for America. And even if the American citizens don't realize it, we're going to help them move in the (laughs) right direction. And I think, you know, almost all Americans instinctively recoil at that insult to our sovereignty, to our autonomy and to our um, uh, right to dictate the, the course of our own country or at least 60 some odd percent of Americans Object to it, but it's but it's um, you know it's really shocking how quickly you can flip the rhetoric around and how many Americans are uh, will really buy unquestionably this unquestioning this line of thought that we are going to you know um, pacify South Asia or export democracy to the Arab world or or whatever the military invention of the day is and a lot of the people who will support that are among the sixty percent who would violently object to Russia intervening in our election and so there's a real inability on the on the part of americans i think to put the shoe on the other foot and to try to think through the perspectives of people of other countries and to get back to your original question sugi i mean i think that um comes out in the literature it's symptomatic in american literature which um you know has has never really grappled effectively with um uh, the the ramifications of American behavior abroad or how America is seen by people in other countries.
0: Yeah, we're not a great ad for democracy right now, um, among other things. I think, you know, it's... I am glad with that you brought up uh, Hannah Musgrave and The Darling, because also, I mean, as I was reading this book inevitably, I, I wrote my, my J school um, thesis on literature of the weather underground, which was really one of the Darling was one of the books I wrote about. And so I had this sort of moment when I read all of these characters who were versions of like sort of, you know, allies that the people behind movements did not actually want. And um, Leonora Gelb is such an interesting addition to this sequence of characters. Um and I almost hadn't really thought of that as a, as a category of book before, sort of the, the unwanted right self-righteous ally. Um, and I also was thinking as I read about this essay that I've been obsessed with for years, because I just think it's fascinating, um, it was in Guernica and it was by the brilliant Pakistani British fiction writer, Camilla uh, Shamsi, who wrote this, this essay called the storytellers of empire criticizing American writers of literary fiction for not engaging with just exactly what you're saying, the history and legacy of um, American imperialism overseas. And I think that your book is, you know, one of the beginnings to what I hope will be a string of replies to the challenge that she issued. And, but her piece came out about a decade ago. I think it was originally a speech at Yale that she gave, um, so I'm curious about, you know, what you think about that critique and how things have changed over the last decade, and also what books influenced you um, as you were writing. One reviewer compared your book to DeLillo's Libra, um, which, you know, has Lee Harvey Oswald in it, and I'm I'm wondering what kind of the books you turned to were.
3: I I, I remember that essay, Sugi, and, and I think it was spot on, and I wish I could say that a lot had changed since it was written, but I, I really don't. Um, a few years ago, uh, Alexander Hammond had a, had a similar essay, I think it was in Lit Hub, um, where he was really calling out uh, American writers for their complete lack of interest in the perspectives from other countries. And I, I agreed with him entirely. Um, I think it's not just the writers, but it's also the publishing industry um, that have, has been completely uninterested in these stories. I think you know, there are some bright spots um, I think writers of color now um, are writing some of these stories about America and American culture, and they are finally starting to get published in somewhat higher numbers. We need a lot more of them, um, but it 's sort of less surprising to see a book that takes a really sharp political stance from a writer of color than from a white writer. Um, to bring up another example to um, to get back to an earlier part of the discussion uh, you, you said you wrote your Thesis about literature of the weather underground. So I'm sure you have opinions about Philip Roth's novel, An American Pastoral. Uh, I guess we're going back about 20 years now. But So this is a novel about an upper middle class white um, entrepreneur in New Jersey whose daughter joins something that looks like the weather underground, blows up a post office, and goes underground. Um, but the novel is almost entirely about the father And his emotional suffering in the wake of what his daughter has done and his total inability to understand why she would do such a thing. And the novel takes absolutely no interest whatsoever in the political environment that gave rise to SDS and to the weather underground and led to some of the violence of the early 70s. So again, I wanted to write a novel that was not focused on, um, you know, the sensitivities and emotional suffering of Americans. And so, in, in the gringa, Leo is surrounded by a, a group of Peruvians um, who all have um, different connections to what I've called the Cuarta Filosofia, which is a stand-in for the Tupac Amaru movement. Um, one of them uh, lost a brother during the Dirty War, um, a, a man known to readers as, as um, Comrade Julian. His older brother was killed by government forces during the war um, for being uh, involved with something that looked like the Tupac Amaro movement. On the other hand, um, there's a woman living in the house with her name, Comrade Marta, who it it, it eventuates that she had actually fought with the shining path, though she had um, come to some disillusionment about the sort of wanton violence that they advocated and wanted to join a a, a more disciplined, um, more reform-minded revolutionary group um, and then um, the third person living in the house with her is a young man from the provinces named Chaski. He's uh, he's he has an indigenous background. His first language is Quechua, um, uh, and he is someone whose perspective on violence against the state is really a kind of bellwether, I think, for what's happening in the novel and where I want the readers' sort of moral imagination to fall. He he comes from. That, that angry place of saying, you know, th- what have they done to people like me for centuries? But he also um, has plenty of opportunity to see the real damage that um, the uncontrolled revolutionary violence can do as well. And he eventually walks away from the group um, to try to pursue things uh, uh, along more peaceful means. Um, So I I try to include a pretty wide um, political spectrum. The narrator, Andres, telling the story 10 years later, is also surrounded by sort of regular Peruvians who want nothing more than to put those years and those events behind them. And they find it um, curious uh, or even offensive that Andres is trying to dig these old stories up in the first place because they've just they've had enough of it. They just want the country to have some kind of peace and quiet and freedom from violence. Now, of course, that's a perspective that it's much easier for for the privileged or the middle class to take when uh, the working class and the poor are are still dying at unprecedented numbers and still have annual earnings of of an average of something like $200. Um, But it was really important to get a lot of that demographic and sociological information in as best I could and to put them in the mouths of of characters who really have more of a right to this story um, and whose stakes in the story are much higher than Leonora's and Andres's.
1: That gets you into a kind of interesting double bind situation, right? One of the reasons that it's hard to tell the stories of empires that you have to be willing to write about people other than yourself if you're going to do it, right? So, I mean, I wrote a novel, The Good Lieutenant, that's set in Iraq, speaking of things, places where we went with quote unquote good intentions and did not do anything that was good at all. And part of the important part of the, writing that book for me was writing from the point of view of Iraqis because most American war films and novels do not include that perspective. But also, you worry, I worried, while writing it, well, am I going to be criticized for doing that?
3: Right? Who, who am I to tell this story? Right. And that was uh, you know, one of the key uh, ethical conundrums about writing this novel all along. It, it took me eight years to write the novel, and one of the main reasons is because for the first few years, I was spinning around through various points of view, various voices, trying to find w- what, what I thought could be an ethically responsible way to tell the story. And it it turns out there really is no ethically responsible way to tell the story, except maybe to cop to the impossibility of telling the story in an ethical or an authoritative way. And so, as it turns out, Andres admittedly, he admits to the reader during the prologue, he's completely unqualified to tell the story. He's the worst possible person to tell the story. And he goes about with his good intentions, Um, for 400 pages, making all kinds of missteps and false assumptions and and having very obvious blind spots in his ability to tell the story. Uh, That gets bounced off of Peruvian characters around him who are are continually correcting him or or helping him to fine-tune his understanding of these events that he wasn't present for, that he has at best an incomplete understanding of. So, you know, you have Leonora who is this kind of interloper um, who in her own way is trying to tell the Peruvian story or trying to inject herself into the Peruvian story. and she has no right to that story, whatever her intentions or, or however well-meaning she might be. Then you have Andres trying to find a responsible way to tell the story, but as you say, Whitney, because of who he is, he's another privileged American. There's no way to tell the story in that conventional, literary, third-person, omniscient, or even limited omniscient way, where he can even think his way into Leonora's perspective, let alone the perspectives of the Peruvians around him. And so the novel is structured around his, his ultimate failure to do that.
0: And one of the great pleasures, I think, of reading the novel, I felt like, I mean, I'm not Peruvian, but I did feel, I feel like there's a way in which when you do know the story or know a little bit more, and you're, say, I don't know, you're in a room with the other people who know the story, and someone comes in and sort of starts to tell you what you should think. Um, I'm thinking of a number of people who have. Discovered MIA late in life, and then decided that I'm the person they should tell about this discovery. This happens with like considerable frequency, and then there's sort of yeah, like, I wanted to talk to you about MIA. So <laughs> I know, right? Like, have you heard about MIA? Yeah, I just heard about. It. I know, and so there's this sort of like the kind of um, you know tongue-in-cheek correction, or the kind of wink and nod, and like some of that humor and the the sort of subculture of the. The group of people who end up being the correctors, um, I think, is one of the bits of humor and liveliness that um, really kind of makes the book feel real to me. I mean, again, although I'm caveating this in, in all of the ways of saying, you know, I'm not an insider to this culture, but it seemed to me um, like one of the ways that to, to watch uh, Leonora attempt to read the culture, to watch Andres attempt to read Leonora, like when Leonora first comes to the country also and is kind of. Um, like really trying to fit in and like re- there's the scene at the restaurant um, right you know throw your money at me call me an asshole and um, and I'm, I'm talking here about sort of like these interactions with locals that she thinks are going to play out in one way and um, the Peruvian characters have a different script and they are she they turn the tables on her really effectively and then also the same thing happens to Andre so there's this sort of mirroring going on which is really cool
3: yeah i I mean I think that's a good way to sort of articulate the strategy that i that I was going for um and I think that that the other part of it also is that andres is kind of unloading onto this Onto Leonora or his version of Leonora, his creation, um, a lot of his own um, ambivalence about his own life as an expat in peru he 's coming to understand that you know having moved abroad as a, as a more traditional expat, someone who wants to run around like Jake Barnes to all the bars and go dancing and pick up the girls. Um, He's, he's really coming to see that that in its way is just another kind of American imperialism. It's just another way that American privilege is shoved down the throats of other countries, particularly poor countries. And so um, he imparts to the Leonora character a lot of motives or perceptions that there's no objective way to verify in the book. As a reader, slowly, I think becomes aware. I mean, in, in some ways, Leo is is um, just his, his doppelganger. That's how he comes to see her.
0: So um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, the limitations of the publishing industry and its ethics and motivations and history. And one of the interesting things about the story is that we also get, there are all of these conversations where history is contested, versions of the story are contested. Um, and they're not just between Americans and Peruvians, they're also between Americans and Americans. So, you know, we've got um, Andres's editor wants a certain kind of story. And here Andres says, I remind him that she's not a story, she's a person, that 70,000 people died in the war, real people, what did it matter what readers want? So there's sort of is this moral question about um, the reader is a customer who's to be pleased. I get that the editor says, I admire your integrity, but I've got a business to run, and you've got a deadline, fix it. So I'm really curious about how you decided to put in that kind of editorial wrestling, what that means to you.
3: Yeah, there's capitalism right there for you, isn't it? Um, So when I lived in Peru, um, I was amazed by how much Peruvians knew about American history. Um, You would have uh, shoeshine boys coming up to you in the plaza and um, reciting the names of the first 20 American presidents. And I would bet all the money in my wallet that there's not 5% of Americans who could name a single president in the history of the country of Peru. So it's a truism that Americans know very little about the rest of the world. And I have found that to be no less true um, in the publishing industry, um, uh, both because of the very narrow range of voices that has... Um, traditionally been welcome in mainstream American publishing, but, but in a subtler and maybe more insidious way, like regardless of who's telling the story, the kinds of stories that we're permitted to tell. You know, one of the, um, one of the maybe bright spots of 2020 um, is that we're having this conversation in a way that we never have before because of the publication of Janine Cummins' novel American Dirt last December and the, the blow up about it and about cultural appropriation um, that happened early this year, um, and that, that whole discussion really rang true to me because it made absolute sense to me why a novel like American Dirt, um, which the writer Miriam Gerba has referred to as trauma porn, um, could could get published when so many more serious and thoughtful um, and historically and culturally accurate or authoritative stories are not being published um you know the 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 gringo was was rejected by i don't remember like over a dozen publishers before melville house acquired it and you know many of those editors said it's it's just not it just doesn't interest us it's not our kind of book so fine i have no problem with that but but a good number of editors would say to me you know this is a fascinating story and a fascinating character but the way you've written it there's there's just too much history there's too much um political discussion and analysis and what you really need to do is focus this story tightly on the emotional journey of the protagonist of Leonora Gelb and So I would think about that and what they are basically saying is that the deaths of 70,000 Peruvians and centuries of oppression and an ongoing political calamity in a foreign country needs to take a back seat or just be wallpaper to the inner life of a privileged 20-something American who has shown up in that country um, and gotten involved with violent revolutionaries. And I find that not only to be um, an, an artistic failing, but really a moral failing. Now they'll say to you, well, American audiences, American readers are not interested in the politics and the history. And they may be right about that, but I think that's just a terrible canard because the reason they're not interested in it is because the publishing industry doesn't regularly give them access to it. The publishing industry avoids these kinds of stories. And so soon enough, you have generations of writers who think that that's not what stories ought to be about. And that makes it that much more difficult for those stories to be published, to be publicized, and to find a wide audience.
1: Andrew, we're so glad that this book is out, Finding an Audience, and we're super, super glad that you're, we thank, is it Melville House? Are they the publisher? It's Melville House, yeah. yeah. So good for them, they're a fantastic house. And we would encourage our listeners to go out and pick up
0: The Gringa. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's really great to have you on the show. And I wanna just echo Whitney's recommendation, uh, The Gringa, available now at an independent bookstore near you, and great pandemic reading.
3: Great to talk to you both.
0: That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast by Literary Hub. Our producer is Andrea Tuthope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our Lit Hub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned today. That's all, folks. Until next time, take care. Read up, mask up, and please don't forget to request that absentee ballot.